9. Start with our summary statement. Psalm 109 praise for Yahweh. To curse the enemy. Of his anointed one. And I'll go over that again. Psalm 109. Praise for Yahweh. To curse the enemy. Of his anointed one. Simple outline for the psalm, two parts, verses 1 to 19, false accusations. Verses 20 to 31, deliverance for Yahweh's name's sake. I'll go over that one more time. Verses 1 to 19, false accusations. Verses 20 to 31, deliverance for Yahweh's name's sake. All right, so we'll go to our observations now for Psalm 109. Psalm 109 is a psalm of David. You can see the superscription there, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. So it is ascribed to him. Uh, It is directed to the choir master or to the chief musician. Um, No other musical direction uh, really is given in the psalm. And there's no occasion that is given in the heading of the psalm. And the text of the psalm does contain a crisis complaint, but... There's no detail that would tie it to specific circumstances or specific people um, that were causing David problems at the time of of writing this psalm. And so uh, various commentators give a number of different suggestions for different events and such in David's life, but but we really really don't know. Uh, No occasion really is given. So we would categorize this psalm, I'd categorize it as an individual lament. And so it does follow the standard conventions of a lament psalm. So in verse 1, you have direct address prayer to God. In verses 2 to 5, you have a crisis complaint. Verses 6 to 20. Is an imprecatory prayer. Verses 21 to 29, petition for deliverance. And verses 30 to 31, commitment to praise. I guess you could add, I guess, an expression of confidence in there as well. So it does fall into the standard conventions of a lament psalm. So that would certainly be the primary um, category of the psalm. Um, 
next we would have to say that it's an imprecatory psalm. And imprecatory psalms are psalms that are praying for curses, for condemnation on enemies. Um, And they can get um, quite uh, explicit. They can get quite um, intense. And this is one of those that does get um, quite intense in imprecatory psalms. Uh, We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, We've talked about that a number of times as we've encountered it already in the psalms. We'll talk a little bit more about that as we go along. This psalm also needs to be categorized as messianic. And that is due to the fact that in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 20, Peter quotes verse 8 from this psalm in regard to Judas' betrayal of Jesus, making Judas the enemy and Jesus the anointed one. Psalm 109 is the second of a three-part David group of psalms, Um, Psalm 108 to Psalm 110. um, are Here early in book five are a David group of psalms. Psalm 108 looked forward to the new conquest of the land, uh, the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, retaken by God, and you remember 107 begins with the gathering uh, and restoration of Israel. Psalm 109 prays imprecation against the enemy and enemies, both plural and singular. And we'll see that as we go through this psalm. Psalm 110 then speaks of victory over all enemies through the anointed king. And so that's this David group of psalms that functions... Um, sort of, again, like an answer when you think about how book three ends with Psalm 89, um, bewailing the fact that the Davidic throne and the Davidic crown are in the dust. The house of of David is is in ruins. Uh, It seems the Davidic covenant has been um, forsaken and and unfulfilled. And so here we're getting um, answer that comes through the Davidic king. All right, so if we think about the connections with these psalms, Psalm 108 really brought the afflictions and the oppressions of enemies back into view. So as we were going through book four, we didn't, we didn't see enemies as prevalent in those psalms. Like if you go back to the early psalms, when the real, uh, and, and there's a lot of psalms of David in the earlier parts of the psalms, when you go back to those earlier psalms, the problem is almost always enemies. It's, all, it's almost always those enemies that are causing these problems. You come into book four, enemies were there, but not, not quite as prevalent as earlier. Psalm 108 sort of brings them back into view. Psalm 109 brings them you know, even more um, into view. And there's also connections with this psalm. Um, with Psalms 69 and 22. And both of those are also messianic psalms. And so verse 8 is quoted together with Psalm 69 verse 22 in Acts 120 when Peter is talking about Judas Iscariot 
and his betrayal of Jesus. And we also get a number of echoes from Psalm 22 in the descriptions that we have of the suffering in Psalm 109. Now, the poetic features of Psalm 109 um, would be obviously imagery. Um, there's, there's several examples of that in the psalm. There's um, comparison of, of David or the, the psalmist here to locusts, um, references to being clothed with shame like a robe, um, that sort of thing. So there, there are a number of, of uh, high imagery uh, bits of language and expressions. Uh, in terms of structure, um, probably one of the most outstanding features would be the very lengthy section of imprecations. So imprecations are not entirely common. They're not rare in the Psalms, I wouldn't say, but they're not real common either. You don't run into them every other Psalm. Um, and this particular psalm has a very lengthy imprecation section, verses 6 to 19. Uh, another poetic feature of the psalm would be the way that the psalm uses contrasts. And so um, it opens up calling to God not to be silent, in essence, and then begins complaining of the enemies that are continually speaking against the psalmist. So you have sort of a contrast there. You know, God, God is being silent, and, and the enemies are not being silent. They are speaking. Um, we also get some contrast, like, with the abuses of the enemies. In other words, the way that the psalmist is suffering is, is disproportionate. He's a, in fact, he's a righteous sufferer, an innocent sufferer um, in this psalm, which isn't entirely uncommon either um, in the Lament Psalms. All right, so we want to work our way through um, this psalm, a little bit longer of a psalm, 31 verses. So I'll go ahead and read this. Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise, for the mouth of the wicked and the mouth of the deceitful are opened against me. They have spoken against me with a lying tongue. They compassed me about also with words of hatred and fought against me without a cause. For my love they are my adversaries, but I give myself unto prayer, and they have rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. When he shall be judged, let him be condemned, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, and let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. Let his children be continually vagabonds and beg. Let them seek their bread also out of their desolate places. Let the extortioner catch all that he hath. Let the stranger spoil his labor. Let there be none to extend mercy unto him. Neither let there be any to favor his fatherless children. Let his posterity be cut off, and in the generation following, let their name be blotted out. Let the iniquity of his fathers be remembered with the Lord, and let not the sin of his, mothers be, of his mother be blotted out. Let them be before the Lord continually, that he may... Cut off the memory of them from the earth, because that he remembered not to show mercy, but persecuted the poor and needy man, that he might even slay the broken in heart. As he loved cursing, so let it come unto him. As he delighted not in blessing, so let it be far from him. As he clothed himself with cursing like as with his garment, so let it come into his bowels like water and like oil into his bones. Let it be unto him as the garment which covereth him and for a girdle wherewith he is girded continually. 
Let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord, and of them that speak evil against my soul. But do thou for me, O God, the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy is good, deliver thou me. For I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am gone like the shadow when it declineth. I am tossed up and down as the locusts. My knees are weak through fasting. My flesh faileth of fatness. I became also a reproach unto them when they looked upon me. They shaked their heads. Help me, O Lord my God. O save me according to thy mercy, that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. Let them curse, but bless thou. When they arise, let them be ashamed, but let thy servant rejoice. Let mine adversaries be clothed with shame, and let them cover themselves with their own confusion as with a mantle. I will greatly praise the Lord with my mouth. Yea, I will praise him among the multitude. For he shall stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. All right, so the opening of the psalm, verses 1 to 5, gives us the opening prayer. We have this direct address prayer. Uh, Hold not thy peace, O God of my praise. Um, So this direct address prayer and the um, crisis complaint that comes in these verses. Um, So it starts off with the request that God would not keep silent or would not continue being silent. And this, uh, this is a common lament feature, asking God to hear, to arise, to, um, to, you know, um, to speak, to do something, to take some sort of action. And the implication of that is that um, it's, it's, it's expected but hasn't yet come. So in places like Psalm 28.1, uh, Psalm 35, verse 22, Psalm 39, verse 12, Psalm 83, verse 1, um, this asking God not to hold his peace, not to keep silent. Now, the word for praise that's used there at the end of verse number 1, it's a word that it can refer to a song of praise or a praise song, um, or it can simply refer to words of praise that have been sm- been spoken. But more importantly, By referring to God of my praise, the reference shows that he's he's crying out to God who is the God of his past deliverances, who is the God of praiseworthy acts. He is is the God that he has praised um, and will continue to do so. So the first contrast that we encounter comes here, uh, hold not thy peace, and then verse 2, for the mouth of the wicked. So the, the mouth of the wicked has not been silent. The, the mouth of the wicked has not um, kept quiet. Now, the psalmist knows that God cannot leave the wicked talk unanswered. In other words, the wicked will not have the final word. That will not happen. That's one of the assurances um, that the psalmist has in praying this prayer. When he talks about the crisis complaint and the way that they've opened their mouth against him, you can see words describing him being slandered, um, him being lied about, falsely accused, hated, um, being fought against without reason. And you notice that he uses the language that they have enclosed around him. Like they, they have formed, as it were, like a circle around him and are speaking all of these things with their mouths. And um, very similar to the description that we have, in fact, uses the same um, term there uh, when 
uh, in Psalm 22, uh, verse 12, and Psalm 22, verse 16, there where David described the bulls and the dogs that had surrounded him, uh, in other words, to devour him. Now, the psalmist here is a righteous sufferer, and you see that they fought against me without a cause, and that's further supported by, uh, by the st- statements in verse 4 and 5. For my love, they are my adversaries. They've rewarded me evil for good and hatred for my love. So the psalmist is a righteous sufferer or an innocent sufferer, and he, he doesn't deserve um, what is being heaped upon him by these enemies. They're against him without cause, and that's uh, the same complaint that we saw in Psalm 69 in verse number 4. And again, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, we'll see references to them as we go through as they use the same uh, words or, or images or concepts. There's a returning of hate for love and evil for good. Now, the statement in verse 4, I give myself unto prayer, and you'll notice there, um, give myself unto is in italics, meaning that there's no words in the Hebrew for those words. So quite literally, um, it would read something like, for my love, they are my adversaries, but I, prayer. Um, And there is a wide range of opinions on what that particular phrase means. Uh, It's not entirely clear, Um, but it seems to indicate that he's saying there's a contrast here you know, they're, they're full of, of hatred and they're full of evil for him and they're full of, of their lies against him, all of these things. And there seems to be an indication here, but he's full of prayer or he's filled with prayer um, in this afflicted situation. So in, in other words, I, I think it has at, at least two um, important implications there that he had that prayer is essentially his only resort. God is holding his peace. The enemies have enclosed around him, using their mouths against him in every conceivable way. And the only thing that he has is prayer. So he only has prayer in the sense that he's not retaliating against them. He's not um, trying to take vengeance against them he has only prayer and then he has only prayer also in the sense that there's none to help him there's there's none to fight for him there's there is no one else all of his hope is in God and so he is only full of prayer that is that's all the response um, that he has to these enemies then we come to um, the imprecations. Um, so in verses 6 to 15, we get this uh, prayer essentially to curse him, curse the enemy. Now, another one of the poetic features comes out here. And as you read through this psalm and you pay attention to those singulars and plurals and things, you'll, you'll see that there's sort of a free flow in this psalm between enemies that's plural, and enemy, that's singular. And so here we go, we go to the singular. Set thou a wicked man over him, and let Satan stand at his right hand. And as you go on reading, there's going to be a bunch of these singular references. 
So what this shows us is, is that the opposition of his enemies, plural, seems to be concentrated or embodied in this one figure. So he has enemies, plural, but, it, but you might say the lead enemy, so to speak, is this one figure that he is praying curses on in this imprecatory prayer. And he seems to be praying that the enemy will be brought to judgment. And the reference there is made to Satan at his right hand. Now, the word for Satan is actually um, very similar. Actually, it's like a transliteration um, from the Hebrew. Now, the word itself is oftentimes translated adversary um, when it appears, but it only appears 27 times in the entire Old Testament. And 19 of those are clearly, contextually, references to the being that we know as Satan. So the word is used, for instance, 14 times in the book of Job, chapters 1 and 2, referring to the personal being of Satan. This is the only occurrence in the Psalms of this word. And so here, it indicates Satan. It indicates a person that is standing at the right hand of this enemy. Now, if you recall, knowing ahead of time that this psalm does speak of Judas and his betrayal of Jesus, well, then it might come to mind that in John chapter 13 and verse 27, we're told that Satan entered into Judas before he betrayed Jesus. So the enemy here, and again, as we come down to this singular enemy, this he, this him in this psalm, the enemy here is, is a figure, is a person that is empowered by Satan for the treacherous acts that are committed. Satan is at his right hand to empower and, and to provoke and to instigate and, and to spur him on, as it were. In other words, he's behind the wicked things that this enemy is doing. So as we proceed then, we see a number of curses that are enumerated. Um, and, and you can particularly see these curses. These are not just, these are not just um, you know, hurt him or, um, you know, handicap him or, you know, take something away. But words like condemned are used in verse 7. Condemn him. In other words, damnation is what's being talked about. Verse 12 says, let there be no chesed extended to him. Then it uses terms like being cut off and blotted out, cut off from the earth, and sins or iniquities being forever remembered in verses 13 to 15. So what we see then, and again, what makes this rise to the level of, co- of, of, of uh, imprecatory prayers it's because these are covenant curses. Let, let him be cut off. Let, let him not enter into the mercy, the covenant mercy of the Lord. Let him, let, him, let him be condemned is essentially what the prayer is for. As you proceed, verses 16 to 20, then we get 
um, what we might call an indictment of the enemy. And of course, the imprecations will, will also continue. So we read here that um, because he remembered not to show mercy, he, he remembered not to show chesed, that's his word again, but persecuted the poor and needy man that he might even slay the broken in heart. What's, what's being said about this enemy is that he was not covenant faithful. He wasn't covenant faithful. And he actually persecuted the covenant member. Now, when we see this reference to the poor and needy, the poor and needy are not necessarily a reference to those who are financially challenged, those who don't have financial resources. This is a common figure um, in the law, in the prophets, and also in the wisdom writings. This is a common figure of the covenant member, the poor and needy. Because the, the poor and needy, they are those who have taken refuge in Yahweh and they have no other help. And you know that it's not just talking about being economically challenged because when you get to the, to the end of the psalm, it says that he will stand, speaking of Yahweh, will stand at the right hand of the poor to save him from those that condemn his soul. Poverty is not his problem. That's not, that's not the point. So the poor and needy, when we see it, particularly in such a, a covenant-heavy psalm such as this, is an indication of those that trusted the Lord. The poor and needy are a good figure because they don't, they don't have help. They don't have connections. They don't have resources. Um, they, they are easily oppressed. They are vulnerable. They are easily extorted. Um, they are oftentimes denied justice because who's going to care? Nobody's going to, to stand up for them and to defend them. So the, the, all of these things ab- about the poor and needy in, in a more general, broad sense you, makes them such a good image of those that have, that have taken refuge in God. In other words, it, it's almost like you know, you've renounced your um, rich parents you know, to go and 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 live in poverty um, and try to make it on your own kind of thing. So if you think about that sort of just as a, as an image, it, you have you have essentially to take refuge in God means you have no other earthly refuge. You have no other earthly recourse. You are trusting in God alone. So that is makes it a very good image. So he persecuted such is what is being said there. So it calls for this curse, and it calls for this curse from the Lord to all his enemies. Let this, reward of, let this be the reward of mine adversaries from the Lord and of them that speak evil against my soul. Now, as you get to verses 21 to 25, we have another complaint section, and we get prayer here that is based on God's covenant faithfulness. So verse 21 in particular, But do thou for me, O God the Lord, for thy name's sake, because thy mercy, thy chesed, is good, deliver thou me. So 
We've talked before about imprecations. We've talked about laments. And, and sometimes laments can even have very strong language in the direct address to God. And we might think, well, that's not an appropriate way to speak to God. That, that's not reverent or, or whatever. Um, but, but we see that there, there's, a, there's a real basis here. In other words, I, I have taken refuge in you, and you have promised these things. Act on those promises. Keep those promises. Hear me. Deliver me. This is my complaint. So this prayer is based on God's covenant faithfulness for the sake of his name. And again, that means that he must act. He has to act. It's not that, it's not that, that we can bring God into obligation but more that he has obligated himself. He has spoken beforehand that he's going to do these things, so for him not to do them would mean that his name would be profaned. And we also see here the identification, verse 22, for I am poor and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. And again, it's not really about money. Um, David was quite well off um as a king um and but again by the end it's about salvation and having no other refuge so we also get this reference to suffering reproach we get we get these images of being shaken in like a locust on a um on a you know blade of grass or something um this this shadow um growing longer and 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 weaker as the light fades um, knees being weak, flesh failing because of fatness, you know, it gives us an image of sort of almost like starvation and, and bones standing out and, and being able to be counted, that sort of thing. And also that the people are shaking their heads. In other words, they are laughing in scorn. And so we have these same, same kind of references and descriptions, Psalm 22, verses 6 and 7. Psalm 69, verses 7, 9, 10, 19, and 20. Verses 26 to 29, then, give the petition for help. And there's an appeal here to the covenant faithfulness of God. And the appeal um, is such that, uh, Help me, O Lord my God, O save me according to thy mercy, according to thy chesed once again. His act will reveal that it was God alone, that they may know that this is thy hand, that thou, Lord, hast done it. Remember, he's poor and needy. He has no other help. He has no other one to deliver. So let the enemies, he goes on to pray, let the enemies be clothed with shame and confusion like you would put on a robe and, and cover yourself. And verses 30 to 31 give us then this vow to praise, which is a common feature of the lament because there's a crisis complaint but a lament is a covenantal prayer. So there's an expectation that God's going to hear, God's going to keep his promises, so therefore God's going to deliver. So then there's a commitment to praise because God's going to act. He's going to do this. He just The, the, the psalmist or the one praying the lament just doesn't know when, just doesn't know how long, but he knows he, that it's going to take place, and so he's going to praise God. Now the covenantal lament then concludes with this expectation of deliverance because of God's covenant faithfulness. And then we get another contrast. Even though Satan stands at the right hand of the enemy to empower him to, um, to, to rebel and, and to fight against God and his anointed, God stands at the right hand of those who trust in him to save them from their accuser. 
and this results in praise in the multitude or the congregation, um, much like Psalm uh, 22 and verse 25. All right, let's go to interpretation. So Psalm 109 teaches, as, as so often these laments do, what it means to take refuge in God. It means to truly be poor and needy, to have no other help but God. That doesn't mean we have to take a vow of poverty and give away all of our possessions. And that's not, that's not the point. To become poor and needy in a, in a covenantal sense is to mean that, that you're, you're not going to trust in anything else. You're not gonna tr- whatever resources you have, you're not trusting in them. Whatever um, you know, intelligence, whatever strength, what, whatever friends, whatever connections, what, whatever you have, you're not trusting in that. You're trusting in God alone. So that's to be poor and needy, to have no other recourse, no other hope, no other trust than God. And so that comes out again in this particular psalm. I mean, you know, David, um, as I said, David had wealth as, as a king. Um, David had um, mighty men. He had, he had um, warriors that were committed to him and, and, and faithful to him. And he, so he had, you know, some connections and some, he had some of those things, but yet he says, I'm poor and needy. Why? Because his trust is in the Lord alone. Psalm 109 teaches that vengeance belongs to the Lord. So the psalmist here is not striking out against his enemies, but he's praying for God to act according to his word and for the sake of his name. Now, the messianic hope of this psalm is certainly seen through the New Testament use of this psalm. So Peter quotes Psalm 109, verse 8, together with Psalm 69, verse 22, to refer to Judas betraying Jesus. Judas, then, is the enemy. Um, that's in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 20 in particular. But the enemy here had Satan at his right hand in verse 6. And again, Satan entered into Judas to empower his betrayal, John chapter 13 and verse number 27. So when we read this as a messianic psalm then, this is a, this is a, a prayer of, of the Messiah in his suffering um, at, the, at the hands and instigation of the enemy. So reading this Messianic psalm alongside the other Messianic psalms that it has many connections with, Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, then fill in this, this picture once again of the Messiah and his sufferings. He is a righteous sufferer. Psalm 69 and verse 4, here in verse 3. He is rejected by his own. Psalm 69 verse 8, here in verses 4 and 5. And of course, John chapter 1 and verse number 11, he came unto his own and his own received him not, which actually has a very interesting connection for this psalm because this psalm starts out with enemies, plural, and, and they never totally go away, but then there's a concentration of plural enemies into this one figure that is the enemy that we've been able to identify as Judas. But Judas also, in turn, is representing that generation of Israel that rejected the Messiah. And the desolations, the fatherlessness, the widowhood, all those things that were prayed to come on the enemy, those are common images of exiled judgments used by the prophets. And they are those things that even Jesus himself said would come on them because they didn't know the day of their visitation by their Messiah. 
So again, not only do we see Judas in this psalm, but we also see that generation of Israel to whom Jesus came, who rejected him and despised him and mocked him and crucified him and then suffering the judgments upon him that are prayed for here in this psalm. He received reproaches that were aimed at God, Psalm 69, verses 7 to 9. And looks like I didn't write down the, the verse. Uh, seems like that was in the... Uh, should be right there, right there, right there. Yes, verse 25. Also, he is identified, the, the one praying this prayer is identified as God's servant. Psalm 69, verse 17, here in verse number 28. He suffers public scorn and mockery. Psalm 69, verses 19 to 20. Psalm 22, verses 7 to 8, here in verse 25. And of course, you can read um, in the Gospels how he suffered that public scorn and, and mockery um, in his death. He is poor and needy, Psalm 69, verse 29, here in verse 22. His deliverance leads to congregational praise of God, Psalm 69, verse 34, here in verse 30. And in his suffering, he became less than a man. In Psalm 22, 8, it was a worm. Here in verses 23 and 24, it is a locust. So this psalm, along with Psalm 69 and verse 22, are echoed in Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 52 and 53 about the despised and rejected servant of Yahweh. All right, um, we'll go to application. And I'm just going to do one because I want to spend just a couple minutes on it. Um, <clears throat> so understanding Psalm 109 helps us understand that this psalm is not some sort of hex or curse that can be placed on our enemies. Neither is any other psalm, for that matter, or any other part of the Bible. And you might say, well, that's strange. I never thought that it was. Um, I was reading um, Eric Zanger's book, uh, about God as a God of vengeance. And he actually documented historical cases of just that sort of misinterpretation, which was oftentimes aimed against Jews, all the way from Augustine to Luther. People, and, and even some saying that it's the 109th Psalms, and so it has to be prayed 109 times. Um, day after day after day upon your enemy um, and it was actually thought to be a psalm that could be used to quote unquote pray someone to death so there actually is a historical tradition of taking this psalm and viewing it as some sort of, of spell some sort of incantation or, or curse you know that you can speak and, and place upon someone well, when we understand this psalm, then we certainly understand that that's not what it is, nor is any other psalm. But that's actually to misunderstand this psalm. It's to misunderstand the message of the psalms as a book 
and it is to misunderstand the storyline of the Bible. So Psalm 109 is not about your annoying neighbor. Psalm 109 is not about your annoying relatives or your annoying coworker or someone else that, that maybe seems to have taken it as their job in life to cause you grief. That's not what Psalm 109 is about. This psalm is about God's anointed son, the son of David, who came to this earth and suffered innocently unto death so that all who believe in him shall be saved from the one who would condemn their souls. So this psalm should make us think not of some magical prayer that we can pray against those that hate us. This psalm should make us think of Christ first, should make us think of all of his sufferings that he didn't deserve, but we did. And he willingly suffered them in our place. And in this light, then, our own sufferings should be reason to rejoice because we're partaking of some of the sufferings of Christ. And we have that pattern, actually, and and that even spelled out for us in the New Testament. All right, that's all of Psalm 109. Any questions about anything we looked at here tonight? Well, um, you have to remember that after the resurrection, Jesus spent 40 days with them, teaching them all things out of the Old Testament concerning himself, the Moses, the law, the Psalms, and what have you. Um, now, it, it is something I've kind of wondered about as, as well. I mean, I, I, it would be... You know, obviously, within in the synagogues, they would have all of the scrolls of the Old Testament. You know, a person couldn't just be carrying all those around with them, and so they had probably most likely had portions, and they always had access, particularly with the synagogues and such, to them. Um, but obviously, the you know Peter knew that I believe because of the teaching of of Jesus Christ that of all the things you know concerning him him and his death and resurrection. So. I think that's why why Peter knew that. <laughs> oh yeah, I mean, how many Bibles can you fit on your phone? You know, it's 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 amazing. But. <laughs>